A reading from the first letter to the Corinthians. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O God, may the words that proceed from my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And may we this day encounter your true wisdom. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The Washington National Cathedral offered a unique experience this past week. All of the chairs were taken out of the nave, the main sanctuary, to expose the grandeur of the architecture and to give the observer an experience of being in a cathedral of antiquity. As I sat in the cathedral this past week, I too marveled at the architecture and wondered how the presence of the holy seemed so apparent in it. Was it the flying buttresses, the Gothic carvings, or even the stained glass windows that made it feel so sacred? I began to think, what if all of this were not here and simply the foundation is all that existed? Would it still be a place for holy pilgrimage, a tourist hotspot? Would the atmosphere be more attractive than what dwelled there, the holy? I also got to thinking about our holy space of worship. What if it, too, were simply a foundation? Would people go off to find another place that was heated, or in our case today, air-conditioned? Would people become disinterested because there was no place to plug in a coffee pot or there's no pulpit to preach from? Would we be too embarrassed to invite others to worship because simply sitting on folding chairs on a concrete slab was too primitive for our taste? And made me also think about the question, what brings us here each week? In the text today, Paul attempts to answer that question for the church in Corinth 
by making a rather exotic claim. The church's foundation, the bare bones of their existence, is Christ. Paul says himself that he, like a skilled master builder, has laid a foundation, which is Christ, and that someone else now is building upon it. Essentially, he has proclaimed Christ to this community, and they, the community, are now entrusted with taking the message and making it their own lives. And it is because of Christ that they show up each week. Well, now you may say, Katie, that's not very exotic. Of course, Christ is the purpose or essence of everything that we do, right? But the danger that Paul warns us in today's text is the danger of making that claim an assumption, an unintentional consequence of our, of our actions rather than the foundation of it. When the basic purpose of our existence, Christ, is assumed, it slips off into the background noise, kind of becoming like that niece or nephew that you haven't seen in ages, for when you encounter them again, you wonder how they have changed from the person that you once knew. When we travel down this road of assumption, we run the risk of veering off two different paths. First, one might trod down the road of expectation. If we assume that Christ is operating according to plan, we have just imposed an expectation upon him. That path may lead to disappointment or even confusion when Christ does not live up to our expectations. A second path that beckons us is oversight. We skim across the basic assumptions of faith, the fact that God loves us, the promise of God's presence with us, and even the inclusion into the community of believers. That path runs the risk of employing a surface-level faith, exploring the depths of these elements and the richness is where faith even begins. And I have to confess to you that I myself just this week assumed Christ's foundational presence. It happened trivia night. This past Wednesday, we had trivia night. And in it, one of the questions in the Old Testament category asked, what is the source of Samson's strength? I only read one group's answer, and it indicated that there were two possibilities to that question, his hair and God. So the ministers got together and deliberated which answers we would accept just in case one of the other groups chose one or the other. And I remember now saying something very foolish when we talked about the God answer. I said, well, yeah, because I had assumed that God, of course, was working through all and in all, and that that was just a minor detail of the broader story. I brushed God's involvement off just as an assumption in the story. You know, in fact, this can happen to all of us. We may find ourselves saying something like this. Hey, let's go to church tonight. I need to talk to so-and-so about the budget. Yeah, yeah, I'll learn a little bit about God when I'm there. Or maybe this. Honey, have you checked on Sally lately? I wonder how she's doing. Oh, no, you, you haven't? Well, maybe we'll just go to church and pray for her then. And then pretty soon, the temple is reversed. The foundation is no longer Christ. It becomes business 
the desire to multiply membership, social capital, and philanthropy. And then all of a sudden, the structure is just an embellishment of Christ. The temptation then becomes for us to say, wow, look at how beautiful we can display Christ instead of come, put your feet on the rock of Jesus Christ in this space. So as soon as Paul then takes this metaphor and turns the church upright again, urging the Corinthian church to build the structure around Christ, he doesn't leave their minds at ease just yet. Though we have bypassed this temptation to say, look at how beautiful that we can make Christ, the Corinthians may just then say, look at how beautiful we can make us pointing to Christ. So then, to that, Paul says in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The you there is collective in Greek. It's a very honorable metaphor, isn't it? That we can take to be construed to think that we are actually worthy of the honor to be the temple of God. Until we slow down for just a second and we hear a pertinent, pertinent word in the next sentence, the word destroy. You see, the temple had been built and rebuilt a few times throughout history, depending on the people's upkeep of it and also the militaristic influence, i.e. ransacking of the temple. So if we too are the temple, then we are destructible. I think disposable may be more appropriate here. And for that, it would be humbling to take this idea and put it with the proposition that I offered at the beginning, the one that said, what if the building was not here? What if it comes time in this life when you and I are not here, when the programs that we have instituted or the missions that we support have changed? The foundation of Jesus Christ will still be here, perhaps in our ancestors, our legacy, maybe in other worshiping bodies around us, or just simply in the presence of God interworking in creation. One of my professors at Duke, Will Willimon, puts this best. He says, We are not, thank God, in charge. Christ is not, thank God, dependent on us for the church to survive. We are not, thank God, the key to the church's future. That belongs to our foundation, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in order to make this whole faith work, it must be hinged on something solid. Not only are we temporal beings, but our attempts at following Christ sometimes can be too. But let me just make a parenthetical here. At first glance, it sounds like we should throw up our hands and say, well, what are we doing here then if we're not needed to further the kingdom? But I see it more as a message, something to comfort us, to call us to lay a few of our burdens down and ask ourselves, well, what are we doing here then? And if we're not necessarily a requirement for the grander church to survive, then why such a mad dash to try to hold the kingdom up? Paul's next move, 
is to lay on another brick to the argument. And he does so using the mortar of wisdom. Wisdom is the blueprint for the building of the structure. What makes this world of the Corinthians so topsy-turvy, he suggests, is the false notion that the Corinthians think that they know everything. Do not deceive yourselves, says Paul. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you can become wise. The wisdom in that age would be much like what we know of wisdom today, functionally. Wisdom operates under the auspices of continual acquisition. To be wise, says the world, one must possess a type of anticipatory knowledge and or have a skill in compounding intellectual processes. To do so requires experiences, conversations, exposures, or even hearing the experiences of others. Thus yields more wisdom. You need more to get more. I give literary credit here to Paul because literally wisdom builds on itself. To illustrate this point in our lives, there's a story from an unknown source that I found this week that says that two teachers were applying for the same vice principal position at a local high school. One of the teachers had eight years of experience and the other a total of 20. Everyone expected the teacher with the greater experience to get the job, but when a decision was made, you guessed it, it was the one with only eight years' experience who was chosen. The teacher, who had 20 years of experience, asked, Well, I've had 20 years compared to her eight, he said. I am vastly more qualified. And the school board's reply went like this, Yes, sir, you do have 20 years to her eight. But she has eight years' experience, and you have one year experience repeated 20 times. Meaning that he or she probably made the same mistakes over and over and did not learn from them. Again, worldly wisdom builds upon itself. All that our Corinthian passage offers about this kind of worldly wisdom is from the lines seemingly quoted from the Old Testament books of Job and Psalms. The wise of this world are slyly crafty. They turn wisdom into a jungle gym upon which to play. They take the skill of the street and they insert it into the operations of the faith. They take the patterns of social interactions and they assume them true within the body of believers. And they take the structural systems of their political context and they apply them to the mission of the church. Does God teach us in all of our daily experiences? Sure, sure God does. But God does not assume those patterns. The wisdom of God may not then build on itself because God doesn't always follow the posted signs that say, stay on the trail. So when we begin to build the faith, we place ourselves at the mercy of the movement of the Spirit, not what we think that we know. The wisdom of this world is just a picture in time, though sometimes we act with certainty as if our wisdom can predict the future. If we don't do X, then Y is going to happen. If we continue to do A, then we can expect B. As I mentioned earlier, all of that is true if God is predictable. 
God is the one with the foresight. That's something that we can trust. So therefore, Paul says to that, do not put your trust in humans. And the NRSV version that was read by Meg today translates it as leaders. In chapter 2, Paul writes, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? We make confident predictions every day. Let me give you some examples. Predicting the future, Ken Olson, president and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation, said in 1977, There is no reason why anyone would want a computer in their home. Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Society, said in 19, excuse me, in 1895, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. But who can blame them because these predictions were spot on giving the context of their time. They were able to use as much wisdom as they had at the moment. The Corinthian context was an era of philosophers and rhetoricians too. People whose credibility depended upon words and explanations. And the competition among them was much like March Madness. The wisdom of the day was measured by how eloquently something was communicated. And Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, even tries to convince them that he is not just one voice among them, that he is different. The wisdom of these speakers was all-consuming, much like the wisdom of the Apple Corporation is on our lives today. So Paul turns this on its head, and he says, I, Paul, do not govern your lives with my words, nor does Apollos nor Decephus. Life nor death has the final say, nor can you base your faith on the happenings now or the happenings anticipated. You are not built by these entities. Rather, you are empowered to build upon the foundation of faith because you belong to Christ and Christ to God. For if it's not by the message of Jesus Christ that everything finds its meaning, then whose faith is it? From this passage of Scripture, we understand that wisdom is not worldly wisdom. Then what then does it look like? Paul says in one chapter earlier, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God presented before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. And he also says this, Things which eye has not seen nor ear has heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So he says that God's wisdom is abstract. It's the foundation of creation that we don't have the blueprints for. Then how in this world, pun intended, do we get the wisdom? Paul goes on. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. They don't necessarily come to us in words. Not words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Therefore, all of that, he says, is that God's wisdom is knowing how to listen to the Spirit, and even more so, how to follow the Spirit's lead. 
No seminary experience required. Just a, just a few centuries before this letter, Socrates said this, The only true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. And being that we too live in an era of philosophers and rhetoricians, perhaps Paul's spiritual rendition of Socrates has a place in our lives too. Sure, it's a fundamental shift in thinking and acting to base our lives on Christ, to individually allow ourselves to say yes to the urgings of the Spirit, even if it's not in line with what the newspaper financial section boasts or the current trends section promotes. It's difficult to go against how we were raised or even to go against what our professional culture has moved, has, uh, moved us into. Next week begins a new era in the life of our church. We celebrate 100 years of ministry here. And no matter what's involved in the list of accomplishments from our history, the greatest one is that God has met with us in this space for 100 years. And whether we make it 100 years more or not, God still reigns. God's mission in our life and in this world is transformational. It deserves much more than a, well, yeah. If we absorb its blessing and dive into the depths of its reassurance, we just might find the kingdom of God in our midst. Amen.